You're listening to Super Power Up with multidimensional master, superpower expert, and former counterintelligence agent, Tonya Donrekla. If you're ready to disrupt reality, then sit down, strap in, and prepare to experience the show that proves there is no spoon. Hello, everyone. This is Tonya Don Reckla, your superpower expert, and I'm really, really, really excited for today's episode. Um, this this gentleman I was, I've been kind of looking into for a while now, ever since I stumbled upon his book, Real Magic. And I know we've talked about it on previous shows, and um, we talk about it within the superpower net, um, but I felt like it was really important to bring him on to kind of share his perspective, because what he's done is created this relationship between looking at, you know, maybe the esoteric or magic and brought it into the realm of science is really fleshing it out from there. His book is so significant that um, the endorsements alone make it incredibly impressive to Nobel laureates. And what did you say, the president from the Statistical Foundation? The American Statistical Association. Association. And that's no small feat, folks. And so we'll get into to all of that here soon. But, but you, I mean, you can read uh, Dean Radin's bio, and it's just incredibly impressive, the work that he's done in the world. And um, I, for one, am just really excited to have somebody that is this courageous to kind of bring these conversations out of the science arena um, on the show today. So we're going to be talking about can magic and superpowers change our reality? These conversations are great. I love the philosophies and everything else, but what is the impact? Where are we looking at taking this um, down the road and in the future? So please, without further ado, please join me in welcoming Dr. Dean Radin to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for asking me. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. So, so we jump right in. We're going to ask you, what are your superpowers? Let's, let's kind of flesh this out a little bit. Like, who are you in the world and how do you categorize yourself? I would say that my superpower is being comfortable with large amounts of ambiguity mm. because you're, <laughs> you're working in science, especially at the edge of the known. Most of the time, you don't actually know what you're dealing with and you have to be comfortable with that. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. Well, and, and just, you know, my hat's off really to you because I know... I don't know everything that it took for you to step up into that space, but I do, you know, have seen enough of the controversy and can only imagine um, the internal kind of journey you had to go through to step forward and say, you know what, I think that we can approach this and prove it, quote unquote, from a scientific perspective. What, what was that journey like for you? Well, first of all, it, it does require a certain amount of ability to take risk. It's, it's not risk like free climbing up a mountain, <laughs> but uh, social risk and career risk. Uh, and it's only because science, like a lot of other things that people do, tends to be conservative and, in the sense of it wants to maintain the status quo. And so, but if you look at the history of science, you find that almost always the people who make the, the, the great breakthroughs are the ones who are driven by curiosity, and the curiosity overcomes the fear of, of social ostracism and risk. And so I've always been driven by curiosity. It's not that I don't care what other people think, but uh, being a, a scientist, part of the joy of science is that you're diving into the unknown, you're bringing a, a toolkit with you to be able to explore the unknown, and more importantly, it's not that you're doing it yourself. So I'm part of a long legacy, now about 150 years, of other scientists 
who have had the same kind of experiences that I've had. And the thing that is generally not known by, by mainstream science is that lots of the methods that are used in mainstream science today were developed as a result of people doing the kind of studies that I'm doing. So for example, the, the use of placebo controls and double blind controls and the use of statistics and experiments, uh, the development of the EEG, which is the origins of neuroscience, and I can go on and on. All of these were started by scientists like myself who were studying the space between psychology and physics. And, and the other thing is that while the scientific study, especially of psychic phenomena, which is what I specialize in, the scientific study of uh, this domain is not any different than many studies in ordinary psychology or many studies in ordinary physics. It's the same, the same approach is just aimed at a very common human experience. Mm -hmm. Well, I, th I think it is a little bit different only from the sense that for whatever reason, it threatens people, right? When we start talking about, um, you know, if I could be overly dramatic, even, you know, just the, the very fabric of reality and how we perceive of it, um, when we start to entertain ideas that perhaps our original five senses and how we initially understood them to work might not be the only way that we, you know, can perceive of information, it starts to make people shudder a little bit. And so within the realm, you know, especially within the scientific community, it does shake things up. I love how you you explain it and you're so matter of fact and it's like, oh, I'm curious, but it's like, wow, you know, that's, that's a huge undertaking to move into those spaces and say, you know what, I, I think that this is legitimate because a lot of folks are, are arguing vehemently that it's not and, and that it's, you know, pseudoscience and everything else. And, and it begs the question of what's the, you know, what is the relationship then between what we're able to prove in a lab and, and with things, especially like sign and magic or superpowers or which, whatever you want to call them that, you know, perhaps lie in the domain of belief um, so heavily that, you know, now you've got these conflicting realities of can you prove something that is very kind of in and of themselves requires belief on some level? How do you, how do you tackle that sort of conundrum? Well, it, it's a fairly standard approach uh, experimental approach that's used in psychology, especially social psychology experiments all the time. Uh, you can study the effect of emotions and perception, the effects of belief on how you behave, all kinds of things that are thought to be fairly subtle. They're standard ways of, of doing these experiments in the lab. <laughs> the, the advantage of then trying to study something like telepathy, to just take an example, mm -hmm. the advantage is that it's very straightforward in terms of the, the design of what you would do, how you would evaluate it. And when you, you look at the meta-analyses, now over about four decades of repeated experiments, about 120 experiments, reported in many labs around the world, reported even by skeptics who didn't believe at all in telepathy, and you find a very systematic, repeated pattern. And that pattern says that whatever is going on in these experiments is not due to chance. It's not due to, to a flaw in the method. It's not due to any known mistake. 
even the skeptics will admit that, ones who actually read the literature. And the, the implication of what you get at the end of these experiments is that somehow information from one person's mind can get into another person's mind. Well, that's basically telepathy. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the great value of scientific methods is that it does allow you to take into account people's beliefs, uh, the possibility that there are other ways of interpreting the data. Uh, you share it among colleagues who, who are just as critical as you are, <laughs> and, and you publish it in the, the as high a ranked journal as you possibly can, and it withstands that level of scrutiny. Now, of course, there are going to be skeptics who don't want to buy it, but generally what I found is that people who are the strongest deniers actually don't know the literature. So they're denying based on their own prejudice rather than the actual data. Beautiful. I, I just love how matter-of-fact you are. Well, we're going to take a quick break, um, but before we do that, I know that we can send people to deanradin.com, D-E-A-N-R-A-D-I-N.com. Is there anywhere else you'd like to send them um, if they want to find out more about your work? Well, I, I'm chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. So you can f find out all about ions, as we call it, at noetic.org, N-O-E-T-I-C.org. Perfect. When we come back from this quick break, we're going to dive into, um, you know, like we're talking about how, what, what the impact is on how we perceive of reality. And plus, you know, maybe tap in a little bit as to why certain um, industries and genres are a little bit more... Um, willing to play in these in these arenas than others and so stick with us when we get back we've got lots of juicy questions for dean and we will be right back stay tuned are you here to change the world do you talk about things like vibration frequency awakening and consciousness are you pretty sure you have superpowers the superpower net is unlike normal coaching programs and conscious communities we provide training intuitive guidance peer-to-peer -peer learning intensive one-on-one -on -one coaching and a high vibrational network of people just like you. When you join the net, you get 24-7 access to a collaborative group of people who support you as you master your personal power and unlock your superpowers. If you're ready to use your superpowers to change the world, then join the Superpower Net today. Visit superpowerexperts.com slash the net to learn more. Okay, we're talking today with Dean Radin, the author of Real Magic, about can magic and superpowers change our reality. And those of you who listened to the first part of the show, I mean, it's just, I, I, I can't overemphasize enough, like how much I appreciate the very kind of matter of fact, very logical approach that you take with all this. But, but ultimately, conversations around magic and superpowers and uh, supernatural abilities really come out of um, some interesting arenas, right? We've discussed, you know, like the way woo-woo, the esoteric or whatever. But, um, you know, my background in counterintelligence and the government and stuff, like, like this is stuff that um, government entities have been playing with forever, whether they totally fess up to all of it or not, or, you know, trying to one-up the enemy and stuff like that. So I always find it fascinating where it's totally acceptable to explore things like using psychics and cold cases or remote viewing men who stare at goats and all this stuff. Like it's really acceptable to use that when we're talking about national security against um, our enemies. However, when we start looking and bringing that too close to home, like maybe this does actually have implications for how we view reality or how we interact with each other, we start to get really weird about it. What, why is that? Why are we able to kind of, 
entertain these conversations in certain arenas, but the second it starts to, again, get too close to home, we tend to kind of freak out or that's where we start to see a lot of the controversy. Like you said, people who aren't even interested in reading the literature because of those deeply held beliefs. Um, what's your take on that? Well, I think there's two sources here. One is, is religion. Uh, most religions are, have suppressed interest in these topics uh, almost from the very beginning. So we have at least a couple thousand years of very strong suppression. Mm-hmm. The Inquisition is one symbol of that, but there are many ways that this has been suppressed. The reason it's suppressed within religion is because someone who has these experiences or can, can express the experiences, like prophets, if they're not within the fold of that religion, then they're heretical. And mm-hmm. of course, that's a matter of maintaining power within the, the social power within the, the church. So that's that's a strong influence that is still very much alive today. Uh, there are people, for example, in the U.S. government uh, who block research on this topic for that very reason. Mm-hmm. They're strongly religious and they believe that this is demonic. And so they simply say, we're not going to do, we won't allow you to do research on this. And this is kind of the same mindset that we were not going to use any federal funds to study the effect of guns on society. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is really basically a matter of fear that they're either economic fear or religious fear. They simply block research. The other pressure comes from the scientific domain, where science is roughly 400 years old. It has created a worldview that is very different from the religious worldview. And within the current worldview, actually, it's not not really current. It's more like the, the scientific worldview of about 100 years ago could think of no way to possibly explain why somebody would have a telepathic experience or a precognitive dream. They considered it, it was considered impossible based on the physics of the day. And you will still find people today who say that, well, that precognitive dream can't possibly be precognitive because it's impossible. Well, what do you you mean? Why is it impossible? Well, because physics doesn't allow it. Mm. For anybody who knows about where physics is today, they would never say that. Because, I mean, just between relativity and quantum mechanics, all kinds of very strange things happen with with the nature of time, the nature of causality, uh, the confirmation of the idea of entanglement. All all of these are saying that the nature of the physical world as we understand it today is far more compatible with the experiences that people report than it would have been 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. Most people are not physicists, so they they don't know what the current physical worldview actually is. And so they stick with common sense. But if science has taught us anything, it's that common sense is not the way the world actually works. <laughs> well, and that's what's so fascinating to me is that, you, you know, you say that, that, you know, now, you know, commonly understood in physics, you know, all these things, but that's, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's been going on for a while now. Like it's, it, it's been decades that, you know, we started looking at materialism differently and we started you know, Newtonian physics got a little bit of an upgrade. It's just like, but but what we haven't done is translate that into, are we willing to let that kind of shake up the fabric of our reality? Are we willing to step into what we quote unquote know to be true? And I'm just fascinating that in certain, like certain sectors of the population get a pass, like national security, for instance, like 
you know, so some of the stuff that came out of the remote viewing, you know, the Project Stargate and all that other stuff like that, that was, you know, people were on board with that. Of course, people were also not on board with that, but we were willing to push the envelope a little bit there. Um, and in many other ways that, you know, haven't seen the light of day yet, but that, you know, they kind of get a pass with that. And it's just fascinating to me. And I think that you're spot on with the religion conversation because religion really was, was um, assigned, if you will, the, the work of what does our day-to-day existence look like? How do we adhere to principles um, in a day-to-day way, whereas national security and these other areas that got a little bit of a pass with regard to some of these more out there conversations um, weren't governed by those, by those same things. Again, it, it, to me, it still comes back to what are we going to do with it? Like we can argue it all day long, but at the end of the day, there's enough empirical evidence at this point that says there's something else beyond what we originally thought. How does that start to bleed into, and maybe maybe that is the work that you're doing, is, is, is having it just start to kind of bleed into and chip away at what we think of as reality, if you will, or what we think of as the physical world. Um, well, what, have you thought about the implications of that? or? Yeah, first let me address your question about why uh, national security gets a pass. And, and the answer there is very clear. It's that from a, from a military or intelligence perspective, all that matters is pragmatics. Mm-hmm. So you go to DARPA or, or one of the other agencies that, that is charged with using the leading edge of exotic technology to make us safe. They don't care that nobody understands how it works. All they care about is that it does something. It's pragmatically useful. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was part of the Stargate program. Uh, I, I remember discussing with the, the folks there, uh, it's very, very strange to be working in a top secret program. It's actually a carve out. It was higher than top secret. So we go into work. We're working with highly talented psychics who are doing psychic espionage missions, not just for fun, but for actual operations. Uh, And then we go outside of the building and nobody believes that what we're doing is even possible. (laughs) And I was told, and now I understand why, it is actually very useful Mm -hmm. from an intelligence perspective to be doing something that no one even believes is possible. Absolutely. Because then they dismiss it as, oh, that's nonsense. Meanwhile, we're getting actually useful, good information. So you can see then that if you just expand that out into all kinds of black projects, then of course, people within the project are working on who knows what, some kind of amazing something that people from the outside would simply dismiss as nonsense. Mm-hmm. And so th- this creates a kind of a a schizophrenic feeling for people working in these programs because you can't talk about it in public. I mean, I can talk about this now because it's been declassified, mm-hmm. but who knows what other things people are working on that 20 to 50 years from today will find out and say, oh, really? There, we really did have UFOs in our gym? <laughs> That's what we used to joke about that in the counterintel arena. It was like, you know, people only find out what you've done if you screwed up. Like, that's, yeah. that's the only way word gets out. And that's a very bad situation when that happens. Right. Um, and it is, but, but, but you're spot on. I think that that's a great explanation for why. And, and we, as long as we can keep it kind of in Hollywood or, you know, in fantasy or sci-fi shows, like, like there's, 
there, there's this weird thing that we do of like, we're going to poke around and we're going to plant it here and we're going to, we're going to talk about it here. But, but at the end of the day, the idea of like, just kind of this leap of faith and saying, okay, if this is true and if these abilities actually exist, then at some point in time, we have to start asking ourselves, how does that change how we perceive of ourselves and others? Because I know a big part of the work that we do in the world is kind of training people to understand that privacy is not really what they think it is. You know, whether you're talking about big brother watching and all of those things or just basic abilities, you know, extrasensory perceptive abilities. And I, you know, I tell people a good rule of thumb is to just assume that you're not the most intuitive person in a room because somebody can feel you. Somebody's hearing your thoughts. Somebody knows what you're afraid of. So you're broadcasting it energetically. When we, you know, I think those are the conversations that one scare the crap out of people, but also it's like, they're fascinating to think about. We have to necessarily change how we interact with our environments and with each other if we operate off the basic premise that this stuff is true. Right. And so you have nailed the very reason why, as a society, we don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. That It's frightening for most people to think that they're, what they imagine is their own sovereignty in their head is actually transparent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we, I mean, there's, there are constantly worries about privacy of this and that, whatever, and it's complete illusion. Mm -hmm. It's not only that uh, various kinds of surveillance that is out there, but even your own most innermost thoughts and feelings and history and everything else are an open book. And, <laughs> and that is frightening to a lot of people. And the, right. as we know, if you're faced with fears, the easiest thing to do is simply deny that it exists. Mm -hmm. That's what we see. The other thing, though, of course, is that our entire society is built on the idea that we're individuals. Right. And at some deeper level, we simply are not. We, we are a collective of some type. And the collective mind uh, influences what we believe, how we act, the way our government works, lots of things like that. So these are frightening. You can't change the nature of civilization quickly because there's an enormous amount of inertia to keep it the same way that it is. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's, you know, in, in more of the kind of uh, Christian mythos and other things, whether you look at the um, Course in Miracles and other methodologies that, that claim to lead people closer to this kind of collective oneness that you're talking about, you know, this, the, the underlying theme in all of those is the idea that there's a reason why we, quote unquote, wake up slowly. You know, there's a reason why we have these um, little blips and kind of take steps forward and then maybe go running back two steps um, because it is mind blowing. I, I, like it really is, you know, when you start to have those experiences where um, you do start to see the, the fabric of reality unravel in front of you or time starts to do interesting things or people start to get absorbed or integrated. Like they're, they're you know, I, I get it. I understand why we go through this in a process and why it takes a long time for people, groups of people in particular to really evolve from that standpoint. Um, and, and I'm fascinated with where that's going. I think that, you know, I'm a big fan of the idea that we've way overcomplicated conversations about, you know, who we are and what we're here for and all those things. And at the same time, there's yet more complexity to uncover. Um, and so, so this transparency movement, the open source movement, like all of it is clues to me that are, you know, creating this pattern of 
at some point we're going to have to get okay with this. You know, my marching orders were so clear, like get people to work together, help them understand collaboration, like help them see um, and walk them closer toward this idea of oneness, this idea of, of the collaborative, this idea of, of a collective, um, because it's, you know, to me, at least in, in, in the world that I walk in, it's undeniable at this point. Um, I had an interesting conversation with a well-known Hollywood star the other day who's on this rampage to get some big reforms underway. And it was just really interesting to listen to him on one hand claim to be completely agnostic about certain beliefs, but at the other hand acknowledge that there are these undeniable energetic connections where we know and can hear and can see things beyond what we think we're sharing. Um, that, you know, I don't, I don't really have a question beyond that other than I, I, I do just find the conversation super fascinating. And I love the fact that you're chipping away at it in your way, in your world, and having the courage to do that. Yeah, well, look at the, uh, the conspiracy theorists love uh, to rail against notions of a one world order or mm -hmm. the global order or the, the hidden cabals that are somehow controlling everything. That, that's a favorite paranoia. Uh, that mm -hmm. comes up again and again. And I think it's a reaction to what is probably the, actually the case. It is, it's not simply that there's a thousand families in the world that control everything. That, that may be true as far as I know. But it, it's more that uh, there is something like a collective mind. That is one of the implications when, when you take uh, either telepathy or remote viewing, any of the psychic phenomena, all of them imply that not only is there a connection between minds, but that connection transcends space and time. Mm -hmm. In fact, if, if it wasn't for that latter part, if it wasn't for the transcendence of space and time, then these phenomena would not be considered scientifically controversial. It's, it's the fact that these are not locked into space and time in, a, in an everyday sense. Uh, and that's where, you, in order to, to look at it from a physics perspective, you have to think of it as a relativistic or a quantum mechanical phenomenon. Not that those physical theories are adequate to explain these effects yet, but at least they say that our best understanding of the way that the physical world works is compatible with people's mm -hmm. experiences. So to, to give another example, we, we did a survey that, that's about to be published where we asked the general population uh, through a survey and also a subset of scientists and engineers, not what they believed about ESP, but what kinds of experiences they had personally had. So oh, we beautiful. A, we made a list of 25 different kinds of experiences that people would label psychic. And not too surprisingly, we asked uh, how many of these have you experienced and have you had at least one of the 25? So among the general population, 94% said they had at least one of the 25 experiences, mm -hmm. and on average, eight, eight of 25. So it's extremely common for people to have the experience. What they believe about the experience is another issue, but they, they have had something that they consider psychic, even though in most cases they don't talk about it. Mm, that's brilliant. We, we turn to the scientists and engineers. That from a mainstream perspective, we would expect that hardly anyone would have ever had any kind of experience, which is why they're so skeptical. In fact, 93% report that they've had at least one of the 25 experiences on an average seven. Well, almost exactly the same as, as the, the general population. Hmm. And yet, 
the way that these these experiences are portrayed as, as real within what might be think of as mainstream media is only only real as entertainment that none of it could possibly be actually real mm-hmm. on the other hand the reason why entertainment uses these ideas constantly is because people people resonate with them they have the experience themselves the vast majority of the population uh, and so they, they go to a movie that is a, an embellishment of something psychic whether it's ghostbusters or a horror film or something or even star wars and they come away with the thinking you know that that doesn't feel completely like fantasy to me because at one time i had this thing happen and i never told anybody about it and it's simply part of our experience the challenge for science then is to understand how do we be even begin to understand this and what does it say about the world that we live in mm-hmm. and that's your original question and from a scientific perspective we don't actually know yet mm. well i love i love i love what you're doing and how again i, I just kind of keep seeing this this vision of you like kind of just chipping away at it i think it's brilliant the the the, the resonance piece and, and what we're able to kind of relate to i think is so crucial as well and and that that's part of the reason I was so fascinated to talk with you because the worlds that, that, that we walk in these days, it's like, it's not uncommon for people to talk about their empathic experience or their psychic experiences or their, um, any of the telekinesis or telepathy or any of those. Like it really is not unusual. It's being normalized from that space. What was, what's lacking in that, that conversation is exactly what, the work that you're doing, which is like, okay, we have to substantiate this some way, somehow in for certain reasons, right? The, the, the worlds of um, healers and coaches and all that other stuff and, and the, that aren't overly concerned with proving it scientifically are still moving about their work um, in their own belief way and, and trying to convince others of that. Um, but, but it's like, it feels like we've got this like multi-pronged approach happening and it'll be super interesting to see how it all converges in the middle. Um, but it does feel like it's part of the same conversation, uh, depending on, on which angle you take with it. Um, and, and yours is just so different. Your marching orders or what you, what you do in the world are so different than mine. Um, you know, I, I just love to see the synchronicities. What you're saying is correct in terms of what people are willing to talk about everywhere except the academic world, mm-hmm. and especially in the United States. This is not so much true elsewhere, but in the United States, if you're an academic, the only way you can talk about these phenomena is what people believe in and its historical role. Mm-hmm. But you cannot talk about this, even if you're a scholar of religion, you cannot talk about these kinds of phenomena as actually real. It's forbidden. As, as an example, there are two universities, two universities in the United States that have faculty who are actively engaged in, in these kinds of phenomena and studying them. Two. Mm. Worldwide, there's about 40. And yet there's 15,000 institutions of higher learning around the world. So if that doesn't represent a taboo, I don't know what does. Beautiful. And so so we're going to wrap up. I want to honor your time. But, but one last question. So what's given that and the fact that you've chosen to step into highly controversial space and, and really hold your ground with it, which, again, I believe you did remarkably well with that book. It was um, – you you were pointed in 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 your your viewpoints, and also 
you know, willing to back it up from that perspective. And, and, and I appreciated that, but what's, what's next for you? I mean, you're, you're obviously shaking things up. What, where you, where do you go from here? Well, I'm still engaged in experimentation. Uh, that's basically how I started and what I'm, my interest is, is, is empiricism. So I'm engaged in experiments. I'm thinking about writing another book. Uh, my, my writing, I'm also writing articles and book chapters and things like that. Uh, I'll probably start to do that more and also be a mentor to people getting their PhDs in this area. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just, I see myself as part of this long legacy of <laughs> usually iconoclastic scientists who don't care very much about what the mainstream thinks, uh, who, as you said, are chipping away at a very common aspect of human experience that science has yet to catch up to. And eventually we will. I think science is pretty good at what it does. But when we do actually understand what these phenomena are, our, our understanding of consciousness in particular, of consciousness and its role in the physical world, will be radically different than the way it is currently thought about. And that has big implications for the way that society works. And that's why there's also pressure from the status quo to not change it. So there are many challenges ahead. Mm, Beautiful. Well, I I adore you and I appreciate the work that you're doing in the world. Your voice is extremely welcome um, in that dialogue. And and please know that, that whatever we can do to support you and your work, we're happy to do that. And at the very least, let people know, um, know what you're doing and, and cheer from, from, from the sidelines. So um, thank you again for, the, for everything that you do in the world and, and your courage uh, for stepping into that space. Thank you. So we've been talking today with Dr. Dean Radin, the incomparable and very impressive about his book, Real Magic, um, and talking about can magic and superpowers change our reality? Uh, I think we've, we've deduced that, that indeed they can and they are and they will. And um, it's also a process that, that's happening. So again, thank you so much for joining us today. And to all of you out there, as always, we appreciate your loyalty. Thank you for listening. And until next time, go out and uncover your superpowers to change the world. Take care, everyone. Are you ready to discover your superpowers? Go now to superpowerexperts.com and take the superpower quiz today.